Queen's birthday. Do we actually, is that actually the Queen's birthday, like her actual birthday? It's not. I asked my daughter about this and asked her, why do we celebrate Queen's birthday? And, and my daughter said to me, I think Australia and New Zealand are the only ones that celebrate Queen's birthday. And I said, why do you think that is? And she said, I think it's because we like having a day off. I think it's just an excuse to take a day off. I went, yeah, that sounds about right for Australia and New Zealand. Anzac Day, we all know why we celebrate Anzac Day, correct? The Australia and New Zealand Army Corps and what they did through the First World War, Second World War and the various wars after that. Labor Day, do we know why we celebrate Labor Day? Pardon? Rest from labor? Yeah, I actually Googled it. And apparently in the mid 19th century, Labor Day was when the unions actually instituted the 40 hour work week. 80 hours, 80 hours a day, eight hours a day for five days as opposed to working 12 to 14 hours a day for six days, um, sometimes seven. So the unions banded together, and that's the reason why we celebrate Labor Day. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that. I thought it was just another reason for Australians to have a day off and have a drink. Australia Day. We all understand what Australia Day was for. It's when Australians get together and celebrate a day off and have something to drink, um, apparently. But it's interesting how we're, there are various days that we celebrate, and when you actually investigate it, you sort of think, wow, that, that's, that's really interesting. Um, there was a purpose behind these memorials that we've set in place. Some of them, some great things to celebrate, the likes of the Anzacs, the likes of Labor Day. Uh, other days, not so much but we lose sight of what the reasoning is for. Now, today, we're going to look at Zechariah 7. And I titled this sermon, a, I think it was a, a danger. A, a, a danger, how, what did I term it as? A chief danger, that's correct. A chief danger for the church. A chief danger for the church. And you may have actually drawn this as Jono shared with us the passage today. But I want you to think on this phrase. When is church not church? When is church not church? This is what I think the chief danger is for many of, or for much of, the 21st century church today. When is church not church? When is fasting, not fasting? When is prayer, not prayer? If you allow me, I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and we're going to have a look at that question today as we look at this passage from Zechariah 7 this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your son. I thank you that because of him, we have entered into a right relationship with you where we can not only be called the sons and daughters of the most high God, but also to be known by you as your child. I pray now as we look at your word, you will teach us, you will minister to our hearts, and you will challenge us about our relationship with you and where you desire to lead us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as we move into Zechariah 7, follow along in your Bibles. I'm just going to summarize a few things. We are given this specific era. We're told that it's the fourth year of King Darius or Darius. 
at a specific date, the fourth day of the ninth month, Kislev. Regarding a specific people, we read about the people at Bethel, Bethel meaning the house of God. And they sent specific representatives, a guy by the name of Sherezah and Regem Melech, to this specific place, which was the priests of the Lord Almighty and his prophets, with this specific inquiry. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? That's all in verses one to three. Now remember, this is a God that has extended an invitation to a people that are apathetic, to a people that are struggling. And so he extends this invitation and says to them in Zechariah 1.3, return to me, says the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. This loving God that made the greatness of his blessing, the greatness of his favor, and the greatness of his presence known to them. And he proclaimed to them quite clearly to his people that it is not by your might, it is not by your power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And then last week, Jono shared with us about, and he continued in Zechariah at the visions of Zechariah chapter 5 and 6. And what I really liked, and I just want to clarify something here. I've been, as reading through Zechariah, I haven't been focusing on the visions because there have been certain things that God has impressed upon my heart as I have read the scriptures, whether it's returned to him, whether it's the declaration of his favor and his presence and his blessing, whether it's by his spirit and not by our power and our might. And, and Jono, as he shared these visions in chapter five and six, he actually repeated a number of phrases. And, and what I took from that as I listened to Jono preach last week was that the, the proclamation of God's greatness expressed in his sovereignty, that he is a God that is in complete control, that we see the greatness of his love manifest in his forgiveness to a people that were apathetic and just going through the motions of their life as God's people. And one of the greatest things I draw, drew from that was the greatest, the greatest expression of his involvement through the vision or the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, as manifest in Zechariah 9. Thus, we move from the complexity of these visions in chapter 5 and 6 we are now faced with this confrontational question that the Lord presents to the people of Bethel. So Sherezah and Regem Melech. And this is the message that God gives to these two representatives through Zechariah to take back to the people. Verse four and five, read it with me. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priest, stop there for a second. It is not just the average Joe. We're talking about the priests here too. The, the, the clergy, the people that were representing God to the people. Place us in that as God's priests. We are his royal priesthood according to 1 Peter 2, 9. Carrying on. Okay, ask all the people of the Lord and the priests. 
When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, everybody say 70. Okay, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Think on that for a second. For all the times that you have fasted and mourned for how long? 70 years, was it really me that you, for me, that you fasted? They fasted twice a year in the fifth and seventh month for 70 years, and yet, and yet, something had been lost in that ritual. Something was now missing. These days of fasting that they celebrated in the fifth and seventh month had now become like Labor Day. They had now become like Australia Day. Even to an extent, they'd become like Anzac Day or the Queen's birthday. They had become superficial reminders of something that had a huge impact on us and our current condition now. These were annual fasts in the fifth and seventh month that represented something significant in their history. Let me explain. In the fifth month, this was the recalling. The reason why they celebrated a fast in the fifth month was because they were remembering the burning of their temple. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 to 10, you read there that it was the, cell, the, the reminder. It was a memorial for them to remind them of the temple being destroyed, the place where they met with God, the place where God met with them, the place where they communed, where they dialogued, where their sins were forgiven, where the mercy seat was, that was now gone, that was burned to the ground, it was destroyed, it was completely wiped out. That fast in the fifth month was to remind them of what they had lost. That's what it was there for. The seventh month marked the assassination of a leader called Gedaliah. And now it's in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 22 to 25. Gedaliah was a governor who was supposed to look after, in Judah, all the people that remained behind. This is now a broken country. It's now a broken people. Now, what a confrontation that God is presenting to the people at Bethel. What a confrontation that he presents to them. When you did what you did, when you fasted, when you fasted, when you memorialized what you memorialized, who was that really for? You see, this is when fasting isn't fasting. This fasting and these circumstances was to remind them of what they had lost in the temple and how far they had fallen as a people. Gedaliah, as a governor of a broken city, of a burned down temple, as a leader that had to rule a people that were now scattered and were lacking identity, you know what happened to him? He was assassinated. You know why he was assassinated? Because somebody else wanted power. It's like, it's like me thinking, oh, I can finally have a house. And my house is, I, I, like, I burn a house to the ground and think, well, look what I've got. 
It's pointless. See, these two fasts were to remind the people of what they had lost and how far they had fallen. People who are willing to kill somebody else to lead over something that's broken. Shows the deceitfulness of the human heart, doesn't it? And this is when a fast is no longer a fast because the meaning is completely lost. Now, here is what's crazy. It's not the first time this has happened. The people of Israel often fell into this, which reflects what we do as people. If you've got your Bibles, look at, or even just read, I'll read it out to you. Isaiah 58, verses 2 to 4 says this. Day after day, they seek me out. This is God talking. They seem, you know that word, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Verse 4, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. That's when fasting isn't fasting. That's when holiness isn't holiness. That's when sanctification is not sanctification. You can't do what you want, when you want, however you want, and expect the blessing of God to respond to you. That's what he's telling these people here. For the people in Zechariah's day, these fasts, they were but a side note. They were an outward showing of a traditional adherence that they had done for 70 years. In other words, it became a performed religious ritual. And you know what's interesting about religious rituals? Is that religious ritual is all about your own self-satisfaction. Religious ritual is all about your own self-appeasement, what it does to make you feel good. That's what religion does. What is it that I do for others that makes me look good? This is why God says in verse 6, and when you were eating, so when the fast was broken, and when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? It's about you. That's all it is. What was the correction of the Corinthian church when they celebrated communion? The whole issue was that is because communion was an opportunity like Labor Day, like Queen's birthday, even like Anzac Day, to have a feed, get drunk, and feel good. That's what they had taken communion, which was to remember the sacrifice given to us in Jesus. They had taken that and said, let's have a feed, let's have a drink, let's party. That's what they had done. And this, and see, I have one point for today's message. That's it. That never happens. I have one point for today's message. And that, that this here, the main point of today's message, is that it's no longer about God. 
It's no longer about their sin that caused a break in their fellowship with God. It's no longer about God and his ordained purpose for them. It's no longer about the privileged position they have as the apple of God's eye. It was all about themselves. That's when fasting no longer is fasting. It became about their hardship. It became about their struggles. It became about the ease of their lives. And what's crazy is that even in the times of Jesus, those exact same things were taking place. The rebuke Jesus gives the Pharisees in his day is a rebuke that we need to take heed of too. I'm going to read a few passages for you. Matthew 15. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. That's fine. Matthew 15, verse 3, and the second half of verse 6 to verse 9 says this. Jesus speaking to the religious because it's about themselves. Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Second half of verse 6. Thus you nullify, that means make of no effect, make useless. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You know what that is? That's them relying on their own methods, their own human methods. Whether there's a misunderstanding of the scriptures, John 5 verses 37 to 40 says this, Jesus speaking, the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. There's this misunderstanding of scriptures. Why? Because when you make it about yourself, you take what's there and apply it to how it looks for you. Not what it says to you, but what you can make it do for you. Or a refusal, just a flat out refusal to believe. Luke 22, uh, this is 66 to 68 and 70 and 71. When it goes, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. Verse 70, they all asked, are you the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. I remember Pastor Roger's father-in-law saying, many of us today will always choose to believe what we want to believe. We will see what we want to see. We will hear what we want to hear. Such is the hardness and the deceitfulness of the human heart. And that's what we're talking about. The revelation here is that very fact. Our own deceitful hearts that due to a refusal to believe, due to a willing misunderstanding of the scriptures, or due to the self-reliance on our own methods, 
fasting then ceases to become to, to be fasting because it then becomes about us. And if I might be so bold, that is when church ceases being church. That is when prayer stops being prayer. That is when fellowship stops being fellowship. That's when worship stops being worship. Why? Because the trap the people of Zechariah's day fell into is the same trap we fall into today, making it about ourselves rather than about God and his great love for us rather about Jesus and the sacrifice that he made so that you and I can be forgiven of sin and born again by his spirit, rather than about his spirit by faith who dwells in us, making us to be more like his son. That's what happens. We make it about us. Matt Chandler, who's a very good preacher, makes this observation about the 23rd Psalm. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the 23rd Psalm. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to look at something that while as blessed and as privileged we are as God's children, that we can proclaim what it says in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But the focus of that psalm is not the fact that he is my shepherd, it's the fact that my shepherd is the Lord. That's the focus of it. The focus is not about me and that he's my shepherd. It's that the Lord himself, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything into existence, who flung the stars into space and knows each one of them by name, he is my shepherd. He is the reason I lack nothing. He's the one. And if you read through the next few verses, you read this, that he is the one to lie me down in green pastures, that he is the one who leads me beside still waters, that he is the one who refreshes my soul, that he is the one who guides me along the right paths. And why does he do it? Does he do it for me? No. Does he do it so I can feel better? No. Read in the, in the Psalm. What does it say? For his name's sake. For him. That's why he does what he does. Not for my comfort, although I receive comfort as I walk with him. Not for my happiness, because my happiness can be taken away in an instant by one single person. But rather my joy has, is, is received from him. Not even for my blessing, although my blessing may come in a form that I might not expect. No, it is for his name's sake. It is for his glory. It is for his person. Because he deserves all glory. You know why? Because he is glorious. He deserves all honor. Why? Because he is the ultimate in being honorable. He deserves all praise because he is praiseworthy. And he deserves all worship because he is worthy. If we lose sight of this, well, then that's when church ceases being church. Because the focus of this gathering then just becomes, well, what do I get? What do you give me? What do I receive from you? What do I like in the music? What do I get from, from the business connections? That's what church becomes. When that, that's what happens. When you take the focus of him, then all we are is just a gathering. You might as well call us a social club. That's what you might call us. That's when church stops being church. 
prayer stops being prayer. Why? Because it becomes a list of what I can get from God. Lord, I want this, this. What do you do for me? That's what prayer becomes. As opposed to prayer being this wonderful privilege that he's granted you and I and his son, Jesus Christ, to enter his very presence and get down on our knees before his throne and say, God, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where he inclines his ear to his people. That's when prayer stops being, pre- being about being prayer because it becomes about us. Fellowship stops becoming fellowship because it's what I receive from you as opposed to what I can bless you with. And worship stops being worship because the God that I'm worshiping, I mean, when church stops being church, when prayer stops being prayer, when fellowship stops being fellowship, it means that I've created a God that suits me. I've created a God that accommodates my lifestyle or makes me feel good about myself. That's what I've done. And so that's when worship stops being worship because I've been worshiping a God that I've created for myself and not how he's presented in the scriptures. This is why it's so important to be on guard against the deceitfulness of our own hearts. If you've got your Bibles, just... Quickly turn to Zechariah 9. When Jono shared with us Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 13, it's pointing to Jesus and what he is going to do for his people. And once again, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I want you to follow along with me. Just I want to read something to you when the focus is him. Because in verse 9, we read this, that he comes to you. He takes the initiative. What does he say? He says, return to me and I'll return to you. He's the one reaching out. He says, he comes to you in verse 9. We read in verse 10, he will take away chariots from Ephraim, war horses from Jerusalem, and proclaim peace to the nations. We read, he will free the prisoners from the waterless pit in verse 11. We read, he will restore twice as much in verse 12, and we read that he will make his people like a warrior's sword in verse 13. Where are you in that? Nowhere. He's the one doing it all. He's the one that approaches. He's the one that makes. He's the one that creates. He's the one that involves himself with you. I've got to slow down. And when I look at the context of this passage, what I see for us is, in like manner, to have our eyes looking at Jesus now, not only for what he has done on the cross 2,000 years ago, but what he's doing for us even now as his people, even now as his church. I mean, I look and I see how he is the one that came to us being born of a virgin. What does Galatians 4.4 say? That when the fullness of time had come, that he was born of a woman, born under the law. I I read how he took away from me the curse of sin by dying on the cross for me. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. What does Corinthians say? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what he has done. 
how he, how he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6, 4, we read how by his power, God's power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He has redeemed us from sin's hold. He has restored us to a right relationship as his child. He has reconciled us to himself as a people belonging to him. It's all about him. As, as I know I'm repeating myself, but I want us to grasp this reality. That, and and our, our salvation from sin's penalty and power, our forgiveness of, of, of sin's condemnation and control comes from Jesus and his great love for us. And that is how we combat the deceptiveness of our own hearts. That's how we fight against it. By looking at the greatness of his love. I mean, look at the instruction. Look, look at the instruction that the Lord gives through Zechariah in verses 8 to 10. Now, granted, this is an instruction that they ignore in verses 11 and 12, but it's an, it, is, it is an instruction we can learn a lot from. For example, in verse uh, 10, the first eight, we read this that the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Okay, I wanna sort of look at how we can practically apply this to us. You know what this means? Administer true justice. In other words, be fair, be just in your dealings with others. In a world where the court of public opinion appears to sway the outcome of various issues in life, we need to, as the Lord has dealt with us, to deal with others. How has the Lord dealt with us in complete fairness, in complete justice? You know what that means as a parent? Having an open ear to your child and not flying off the handle, which I have done far too many times. You know what that means as a, as, as a married couple? It means listening to what your wife is saying or vice versa, is listening to what your husband is saying. You know, if, if it means working while you're at your job, it means having a good testimony that doesn't bring disrepute to the name of Christ, especially if they know you're a Christian. Administer true justice as the Lord who has dealt with us in grace and peace and love, true justice, so too we seek to do the same, not only here as brothers and sisters, but in the world who need to know and see what true love really looks like. We read in this, show mercy and compassion to one another. As the people of God, mercy, compassion, understanding, acceptance are to be the qualities that we are known for because we have experienced those same qualities exponentially through the person of Jesus Christ. We've experienced the greatest, I mean, honestly, honestly, you know your hearts. I know my heart. I know how selfish I am. I know how greedy I am. I know the bad attitudes I have toward people, especially when I'm driving. And I'm just like, and you have that. And then you repent and say, Lord, forgive me. And then straight away, say, did it again. I know that. And I know this, that my God and his love for me forgave me by sending his son. And that he is making me, not only made me a new creation, but continuing to make me a new creation in himself. 
where those attitudes change, where that anger is dealt with. As I continue to lead him, and the greatest, the greatest example for me is when I look at that compassion and mercy demonstrated to me. I mean, what did Jesus say? That, we, that the world will know that we're his disciples by how? By the way we love each other. As God has loved me, Jesus said, I'm to love you. I am supposed to demonstrate that, but that is, that is something that is beyond my ability. That is why we need him. There's a, a great hymn, which I, I've always loved. I've, actually, I'm going I'm to read it to you. It's just as I am. All the aunties and uncles would know this, or those from sort of traditional church backgrounds. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come, just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. That's the truth of what we have received in Jesus Christ, who takes us wherever we're at and makes us new. And he says, now, me, I have to demonstrate that same love to you, my sister Anne, to my brother Peter, to my sister Grace, to my brother Sun Ling. It's beyond me, but as I've gone to him, just as I am, he has filled me with love for himself and for you. See, to experience such mercy, such compassion, cannot result in me being ignorant of what and of who others are. But the final charge given at the end of verse 10 is the natural outcome, the natural result that as we have submitted to him, as we have sought to administer true justice as the word of God instructs us, as we have sought to demonstrate mercy and compassion in the same heart that God has given us in his son, then we are to do not only physically, but also get to bless spiritually. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. We have inward attitudes. We have personal choice. In verse 10, we have outward action. This is the fruit that stems from a good tree. The good fruit that grows from a good tree. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to him and been born again by his spirit, you are a good tree to bring forth good fruit, fruit that will last and will have an impact on those around you. Which means this, the widows and the widows are cared for. You want to know how you can honor, honor the people of God? You want to know how to glorify God? I know we have widows in this church. I know we have widows in this church. Widows in this church. And I don't want to be rude or mean or anything like this, but if we are to be faithful to the word of God and his instruction, then how have we cared for those people in our church? When was the last time you called a widow in this church? When was the last time you texted a widower? When was the last time you sought to honor God by the way you cared for people in this church? You know why? Because we make it about ourselves. 
That's when church stops being church. We look at the orphans. I know that there are people here who, you know, maybe, I don't know if you're orphans or not, I see a lot of the kids here and, and praise God for your parents. But there are so many people in this world who don't know what it's like to have a dad or a mum. There are so many people in this world that don't know what it's like to have a, a parent or even just an adult that can invest into their lives. You want to know how you can honour God? Find somebody you can invest into. Not for your own benefit, not about yourself, but so you might be a picture of Jesus Christ. And, and the connection that you have with the Lord, they will see. And the impact you can have on their lives for the glory of God. The poor, there are so many needs out there that we can have an impact. And then the thing that I find interesting is this very last phrase, do not plot evil against each other. He's talking to the very people of God here. There's no place for you to sit there and gossip about somebody. There's no place for you to sit there and have your own little gripe over somebody else or over what somebody else has or what somebody else doesn't have, what someone does or what someone doesn't do. No, 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 no. As the people of God, we're to represent a love that we've experienced and share with others. This is why pure religion, undefiled religion, true religion isn't recognized by the size of the building or by how good the music is or by how charismatic the leader might be or how, how entertaining a preacher might have or the, or the words that he uses. It is identified by the love of God, the love of his saints, and the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ who loved you and who gave himself for you, and then what we do in response to that. That's what, that's what it's about. That's how pure religion is identified. By the love of God, the love of the saints, and the centrality of the gospel. See, this is what William Booth said, and I'll close with this quote. I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be a religion without the Holy Ghost, will be Christianity without Christ, will be forgiveness without repentance, will be salvation without regeneration, will be politics without God, and will be heaven without hell. That's what he says a chief danger will be that confronts us. As we in the 21st century now, we're confronted with this today. But we also have this, the blessing of God's word in each of our lives to walk according to what he says and to live that reality out. As we experience the goodness of God to us, we can then impart to each other so that we can be the body of Christ that is pleasing in his sight. And that is my prayer for us today. And so what I'm going to do is that I'm going to invite the music team up. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm not going to close in prayer afterwards. We're going to close on the song for those of you at home. But when they sing at the end, what I do want us to do is that I want us to pray for each other. I want us to spend time with each other. I want us to evolve ourselves. Now, look, I cannot manufacture that. I can't give you that quality moment, okay? What I can give you is a quantity moment that you can actually invest into somebody else for the glory of God. So if you just want to bow your heads, we'll pray and we'll close with the last song. And then we'll, I want you to find someone to pray for, please. Let's pray.
Father, as we stand here, as we are, well, as I am challenged by your word, I am just convicted, convicted in all the ways where I have failed to live according to your heart, according to your word, and, and Lord, not being involved in, in the lives of people that you have called us to do. Father, I pray you will help us to be on guard against the deceptiveness of our own hearts, to not make it about ourselves, but to have our focus on you. And that as we have our focus on you, we will experience the fullness of your goodness, the fullness of your grace, and impart that to one another as we live as your body, united in your Son and, and directed by your Spirit. I pray for us now that you will stir within our hearts to not just exist as your people, but Father, that we'll be ignited with a fire to, that cannot be put out by our own selfish wants. Please help us, Lord, to be the church you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.